Hey, Melissa Job here, and I am so excited to tell you that Intimate Fame is now a part of Apollo Plus, the creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators just like us. When you subscribe to Apollo Plus, you can listen ad-free, you get early access to episodes, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and so much more. But best of all, your support benefits us and our fellow creators with a 70% revenue share, so we can keep on creating all the audio content that you love. Join Apollo Plus now through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Welcome to Intimate Fame. Conversations with the famous and infamous like you have never heard. Success, love, history alive, history undressed, private lives intimately revealed. What if you were there? Now you are invited. Meet extraordinary people as you never have before. One person stories like no conversation you have ever been part of. Tonight, The Last Sitting, Marilyn Monroe, Episode 3. June 1962, Los Angeles, California. Marilyn Monroe arrived at the Hotel Bel Air. She was alone, five hours late. She had agreed to a photo sitting for Vogue magazine with the famous photographer, Bert Stern. Marilyn never granted photo sittings, but even she knew her career needed the publicity. 2,571 photographs were taken. The photographs would be the final glimpse into the life of the Hollywood icon. Six weeks after the photo sitting, Marilyn Monroe, the original American goddess, would be dead. Let's have a toast, Bert. One thing that makes for healthy American girls is a small quantity of clothing. Look at me, Bert. I'm naked, wrapped in 15 grand of Dior chinchilla fur. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Trouble? Boy, I could get into some. I don't mean name-calling or a fight. I mean when you feel that out of nowhere, life hits you on the chin and you think, wow, the world's out to fucking get me. It turned out to be one hell of a year. The nudes. My mother, not dead, but crazy. My affair with the most famous sports hero in America. Five movies came out. Articles in nearly every magazine. By the time I was 27, all the women I had known as role models had come to unfortunate ends. Trouble? News broke about a photograph of a nude woman. It was from a calendar the previous year. Golden Dreams, 1951. So many people wanted it. They reprinted it. The press department got wind of it. It wasn't that unusual. More and more you saw half-naked women in magazines and movies. But for me, I was hooked up with Joe at the time. It didn't take long to ID me as the dame in Golden Dreams, 1951. Saying the studio went apeshit is an understatement. Once the Mr. Big Shots figured out it was me, they hauled me into an office suitable for a firing squad and demanded that I admit that the rumors all over the world were true. That I was the nude Golden Dreams girl. The nude girl everyone was buying. What did I have to say for myself? I didn't flinch. I knew what to tell them. 
I felt it in my gut. And that's the ladylike place of telling you where I really felt it. I told them, straight out. Yeah, it's me. What I really wanted to tell them was, I thought the photographer, a very talented man, didn't capture my best angle. I know all about angles, Bert. A room full of Mr. Big Shots with their hair on fire. That's what I remember when I made a quick exit. Because when you give the finger to the Mr. Big Shots, you better have a quick exit. None of them knew what to do. A naked photo of their biggest rising star. Well, I knew what to do. I went to the press before they came to me. An interview was coming up quickly on a picture. I did the press photos and chit-chat. I zeroed in on a female correspondent that had the two most important qualifications of anyone in the press. She had always shown empathy for me. And she had more damn readers than any reporter in the room. As the press was leaving, I lightly touched her arm. Quietly, I asked her to remain behind. Now that's read me to anyone in the Hollywood press. We went to a secluded corner and sat down. I spoke to her the way Ingrid Bergman spoke in a movie when she was certain someone wanted to kill her. I told the reporter, I had a problem, and I don't know what to do. Oh, you bet your ass I had tears in my eyes. I told her, a few years ago, when I had no money for food or rent, a photographer I knew asked me to pose nude for an art calendar. His wife was there. They were both so nice. And I earned fifty dollars I needed very much. That wasn't a terrible thing to do, was it? I never thought anybody would recognize me. And now they say it will ruin my life. Tragedy into triumph. One single interview the Mr. Big Shots never had the Mr. Big Shot balls to think of. My nudity was my honesty. The story of a hard life. A young girl, like so many before, thrown aside, abandoned. My body. My sexuality. All that was left to me. Which, in turn, only in Hollywood, made me virtuous. I did the grand tour of throwing myself at the feet of the press. A lost waif, finding her way in the cold-hearted blizzard of Tinseltown. Life magazine came out. Marilyn Monroe, the talk of Hollywood. There was a very small photo of the nude and a very large photo of me, clothed, listening to music at home in front of a fireplace. A fucking fireplace. 5,000 fan letters the first week. Life magazine had a nice little follow-up. Marilyn is naive and guileless, yet smart enough to have known how to make a success in the cutthroat world of glamour. Then it ended with a flourish. Hollywood at her feet. A possible project for Marilyn is a film biography of... Harlow. Yeah, Harlow. I made up a lot of stories after that. Not to pull something over on anyone. It's just that it had become painfully clear, even to a dumb blonde, how to play the Hollywood game. All these Polaroids scattered about. Okay, Bert, enough of the mystery. 
This place is trashed with more test pictures than empty champagne bottles. Let's see some of those shots you're throwing about. Oh, these are good, Bert. Better than good. Great. Not this one, though. Trash this. <laughs> it's going to be great, right? This is how you know. Honestly, this is how you know you got me. Here, look at this one, Bert. How do you know? This is it. I have never seen me like this. They're right about you. Shooting the famous. How do you know when? When, Bert. <laughs> you and your secrets. The moment when they show themselves. How do you know when? Don't we all pretend? How do you know when you're real? All right. Keep your mysteries. I hope to God I still have a few. Okay, back to it. This fur is not going to sell itself. Actually, it probably will. I know there were days Mr. Wilder could have strangled me. He said as much. Out loud to anyone who would listen. We were 20 days behind schedule, and God knows how much over budget, and I was taking a lot of pills. They were working with Monroe, and I was platinum. Not just the game, and not just my box office. I knew so little of my life, but I knew what you saw on the screen was something else. I remember the first day of production for Some Like It Hot. Mr. Wilder was smiling and cheerful. He greeted me. Marilyn, you're looking good. I hugged him. Why shouldn't I, Billy? I'm incorporated. I was a businesswoman. A lot of good it did me. Given a, a businesswoman needed businessman in control. More than ready to cheat her. Up until Some Like It Hot, my movies were shot in Technicolor. It was in my contract. So that's what I expected for hot. It was at lunch, even before production had started. Mr. Wilder informed me, very matter of fact, that the movie would be shot in black and white. I'm sure he knew about my Technicolor contract clause because he didn't give me a chance to say a peep. He made the case that the makeup of two men, two real movie stars in drag, if shot in color, would be impossibly vulgar, that no one would believe that anyone would believe they were dames. I wasn't buying Mr. Wilder's case at first. Then he showed me early tests, and damn it, that was the end of that. I couldn't argue. In color, Mr. Curtis and Mr. Lemon, those two poor men looked like college boys done up as the saddest drag queens anyone ever saw. I was only a year younger than both of them, but I felt such a child around them. I was late all the time. You try playing sexy around those two men. Locked myself in my room, staring at the Pacific Ocean. They started to look thankful that I showed up at all. It became known as Maryland Time. I never had such brilliant direction as Mr. Wilder gave me. But nothing worked until I felt right about it. I simply said over and over, Sorry, I have to do it again. Mr. Wilder would say, Well, I tell you, Marilyn, just possibly if you were to 
I would snap. Just a moment now, Billy. Don't talk to me. I'll forget how I want to play it. Mr. Lemon pulled me aside more than once and said this kind of stuff made him want to jump off the roof of the Hotel del Coronado. Trust me, Mr. Lemon had a very nice suite on the top floor with a balcony. I took him at his word. He tried politely to remind me I had a professional commitment. Mr. Curtis was more blunt in his critique of me. He said, kissing me was like kissing Hitler. I had no idea Mr. Curtis had kissed Hitler. Here's a secret. If I must do intimate love scenes with somebody who really has that feeling toward me, then my fantasy must come into play. In other words, out with him, in with my fantasy. I imagine someone I would want to be there. What went wrong with the prince of the showgirl in England went far worse on Some Like It Hot. Everyone during production could sense the bitterness Arthur had for me, and the contempt for them. Arthur's work was empty, humiliated and living off my income. Hollywood, me, and a movie. It was the perfect storm. It was all too much for Arthur to endure. Mr. Wilder told me that when he met Arthur, he remembered thinking that at last he had met someone who resented me more than he did. <laughs> Bert, what is that? Over by your gear. That small tin box. <laughs> oh, look at these. Very tiny breath mints. Bert, are we driving at the same speed? <laughs> well, we will just keep an eye on those now, won't we? Arthur told Mr. Wilder he would allow me to work only in the morning. I was too exhausted. The outside shots and the sun. Mr. Wilder told him, the morning? She never shows up until after twelve. Arthur. Bring her to me at nine, and you can have her back at 11.30. The reason for Arthur's demand? I was pregnant. The film was wrapping up, and I had finished most of my scenes, lucky for me. I went back to New York to rest for my pregnancy. Within a month, I had miscarried. Strike three. It was the last time I considered being a mother. My motherhood is crazy. M my mother was crazy. Eunice is crazy. Keep smiling, right? Because life is a beautiful thing, and there's so much to smile about. Here is what I know about Marilyn Monroe. What I tell myself about her. I look on the screen as if you could reach out and touch me. I am something of a real image, beyond photography. I'm never vulgar in a role that could have become vulgar. And somehow you feel good when you see me on the screen. Marilyn makes people happy. Just standing still. That's what they want. 
It took forever to learn. It's me. In the end, nothing else. No need for fashion. Did you bring enough to share? I'll just take one. Did you get enough fashion, Bert? I, for one, have had enough of fashion. Bert, have a m m m mint? Come on now. We have champagne together. We have mints together. There you go. Now we're off to the races. Varoom, varoom. <laughs> I have a quality no one else ever had on screen. I certainly had never seen. When I look at myself, as if with each performance, I wanted people to see Marilyn, revealing Marilyn, with each time, more of Marilyn. For my fans, my audience, I was undressing. I'm selfish, impatient, and a little insecure. I make mistakes. I'm out of control, and at times hard to handle. But if you can't handle me at my worst, then you don't deserve me at my best. This is Scott Edward Smith, the creator of Intimate Fame. Thank you for listening and join us next time. The Last Sitting, Marilyn Monroe. Written by Scott Edward Smith. Performed by Rachel Ogilvie. Sound design and ritual music by Chesney Hawks. Associate producer, Melissa Job, Produced by Howard Gluss. Thank you.